Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another interesting development this week, the Justice Department has released a list of cities deemed anarchist jurisdictions that are marked for review and threatened with withholding federal grant money. New York City, Portland, and Seattle are all on the list for voting to cut police funding, not prosecuting protesters, and the rejection of federal intervention. For more on how these cities could be losing some federal money, we'll speak to Alan Smith, political reporter at NBC News. So the Justice Department really went out and fulfilled its part of the mandate from really President Trump's instructions earlier this month to various parts of the administration to seek out and determine what it described as anarchist jurisdiction. Now, from the end of this, that Attorney General William Barr on was actually pretty open-ended because part of those instructions included that Barr basically could take anything happening in a place and use it as part of justification to label a jurisdiction an anarchist jurisdiction. Now, obviously, this is a significant escalation of the president's uh, rhetoric that's been aimed at states and cities that are under democratic control. It's an element that we've kind of seen out of the president's playbook a few times, which is, you know, to threaten to withhold funding in exchange for something in this case, though, that's not necessarily clear. I know that from Attorney General Barr's memo on this, for instance, in New York, he had cited the city council voting to decrease funding for police and local district attorneys declining to prosecute charges stemming from the protests, such as disorderly conduct or unlawful assembly. And it was a different justification for each of the districts, although there was some similar overlap. So it's uh, an escalation. And some of these cities have already kind of fired back at the president. And I know that the attorney general in New York has already threatened legal action should the administration actually move forward with the withholding of any funding from that state. We've already seen a bunch of protests out of Oregon. And as you mentioned, kind of the justifications for these being labeled anarchist jurisdictions kind of can vary. They're looking at a lot of things. As I mentioned, the protests, defunding police departments, which uh, New York did. I think they took out uh, about a billion dollars out of the police department there, things like that. So they're looking for different justifications for all of this. Now, beyond that, these funds comprise a lot of what these states and cities come to count on. Uh, what kind of funds specifically are they looking at taking back? And then beyond that, these funds are approved by Congress. So it's not like the president can just take some of that stuff away. Exactly. So on your last point, that's going to be a point that's brought up. If these funds are in fact held up or taken away, that's the point that's going to be made in court. You know, the executive branch doesn't have the unilateral ability to decide to withhold federal funds that have been appropriated by Congress. Now, it's unclear exactly what funds would be withheld from these cities, but a Trump administration official did say earlier this month that it would be involving some sort of grant money, likely grants that are made to law enforcement. This official had said that the money's not being used. Why continue to give it? Why not instead give that money elsewhere where it will be put to better use? Now, Already, you know, the New York attorney general has said that's essentially evidence that it's the Trump administration and not her state 
that is seeking to defund police by withholding funds that, in theory, would be going toward law enforcement purposes. Right. I mean, the fight on this is just going to be going back and forth. And one of the bigger questions, too, is, well, how do you get off of this list? Let's say I know the president has said that a lot of these places have rejected federal intervention, having federal officers come in and kind of maintain order, law and order, as the president likes to say. So what's the answer? They say yes to that. There's still going to be a lot of protests. Maybe things calm down. That's what gets them off the list. You know, there's a lot of big questions still floating around on this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least as of now, it's not entirely clear how a city that gets on that list is going to be able to get off. Something that I find interesting is that when you look at the protest situation in New York and you compare it to a place such as Portland, where protests have been pretty rowdy and going on for, at this point, I believe, you know, more than 100 days straight after the death of George Floyd, it's not exactly a, a comparable situation. I mean, being on the ground here in New York City, you are seeing a very different scene than one that the president describes on a day-to-day basis when he's mentioning New York City as being, as now labeled today, an anarchist jurisdiction. I mean, I'm pretty sure people here on the ground would be a little confused to find out that their city is under total anarchy right now. But it's pretty unclear how to get removed from such a list once you're on it. I'm not sure even if reversing some of the steps that the administration or the Justice Department rather laid out as part of its justification for labeling New York City as such, even if changing some of those things would necessarily change the end result here. The politics of this really seem to be evident. Obviously, the president is targeting these Democrat-run cities and states with all of this. He continues to say he's the law and order president, and this stuff wouldn't be going on if they let him help in there. So really just kind of, I don't know if this is going to win him brownie points for the election. I I don't understand all this, but really just setting himself up for more fights with these cities. Look, we're getting closer to election time, and the president is looking to bring the fight not only to Joe Biden, but to other Democrats who might be viewed more negatively in public polling than the former vice president is. Now, it would be interesting if he follows through on these threats to essentially withhold or or revoke funds from some of these cities. I mean, I know that in New York, some of that funding could go towards things that would not be politically wise for the president to have labeled that he was you know, responsible for removing those funds and defunding elements of law enforcement or public safety or or anything else around here that could be a bad look, you know, right before the election. Alan Smith, political reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Now a story on the intersection of COVID-19 and the U.S. military. Thousands of U.S. troops will be taking part in a COVID-19 early detection study with the aim of understanding what it means to be asymptomatic and also catching illnesses before they get worse. Soldiers will be wearing bio-measuring devices that monitor small changes in blood oxygen levels, heartbeat, or respiratory patterns, with the hopes that they can catch COVID early on. For more on this, we'll speak to Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. The military is keenly interested in figuring out early detection for any kinds of illnesses like the flu, for example, because they have units, for example, special forces deploying to remote areas. And if there's somebody in that unit who could be contagious from flow down the unit, they want to know who that person is and, and eliminate them as early as possible from the possibility of contaminating others. And so to that end, They've been working with private research to have service members wearing something almost like a Fitbit that measures any changes in respiratory, blood oxygen, saturation levels, and other factors that are sort of precursors to illness. 
And so what's happening now is that device and that research, which had started looking at symptoms of the flu, is now being applied to COVID. The idea being that rather than waiting for a fever to show up, if we can find changes in blood, oxygen saturation or respiratory or heart rate early on, that there might be a pattern that one can see that would offer an early detection before someone shows something more overt and maybe becomes more contagious because they've reached a level where they have a fever. Tell us about the actual study. My understanding is that they're looking for more than 5,000 troops in the coming weeks to join this, and this is something that's going on between the Defense Department and Phillips. That's right. And so what's happening, they've already started this with a few hundred, upwards of a thousand troops who are wearing this. These are largely U.S.-based troops who are wearing this. And what they're doing with these troops is they're not interacting with them directly, but rather they're collecting data. The idea is that the U.S. military offers the option of a large volume of a population. And so they're trying to get to as many troops as possible, hopefully 5,000 is their goal, such that you would have a big data set to look at. And so they're going to be collecting over a period of weeks all these biological, physiological changes and seeing if they can detect a pattern. I should note that in some of these instances, some of the troops who've worn them have then turned out to test positive for COVID-19. And so there's already sort of some data that they got from that. But I think the idea is that over time, that they'll have such a large amount of data that they can start to draw conclusions and come up with a a metric for at what point should one be concerned about whether they are sick with COVID-19. To be clear, this does not diagnose someone, but it's intended rather to find sort of early signs that suggest perhaps one should go to the doctor and get properly diagnosed. What do we know about numbers of COVID cases in the military so far? So the military overall since March has had about 43,000 of their service members test positive for COVID-19. And of those, there's been seven deaths among the military, far lower than the statistics for the general population. I think the most sort of famous instance of an outbreak of COVID-19 within the U.S. military was aboard the USS Theodore Roosevelt, which is a carrier that was operating in the Pacific when it had an outbreak of more than 1,000, if I recall correctly. That's about a, of a 4,800-member crew. And what's interesting is in that case, many, many of those who tested positive showed no symptoms at all. And so there's already been a real-world sort of challenge for the United States military vis-a-vis COVID. And the interesting thing is that the numbers sort of tell one story. Practically speaking, what you're seeing in the military is a restriction on movement because of um, concerns about COVID-19. Service members now having to quarantine for two weeks before they go out on deployment. So there's been a real shift in operations because of COVID-19. And that was really triggered, I think, in terms of substantial changes to how the United States military operates by the outbreak on the USS Theodore Roosevelt. But the numbers overall are quite positive from the military's perspective in terms of ratio of total number of cases to deaths compared to the general population. Now, of those 43,000, about a half, maybe more so, a little bit more, have our recovered. So remember, this is out of a population of about 2 million plus. With this type of study, you know, it's not very invasive or anything. They're just kind of collecting data from, as you mentioned, these are these smart watches or smart rings or things that they're using. Is this uh, an opt-in thing for the service members? Because you know, obviously we're kind of using them as these guinea pigs for this type of study, but is this all opt-in for them? So yes and no. I think there are units that are sort of volunteering. I don't think anybody's being asked to wear it who doesn't want to. I think if someone speaks up and says they don't want to wear it, that is an option. 
But you're getting at a bigger issue, which is the relationship between medicine and the military goes all the way back to the beginning of war itself, because so often the military, because of the injuries you see in war, has been a place, a source for research and understanding of new challenges in terms of medical treatment. I think we saw this most recently in the, in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, PTSD, TBI, and of course, amputees and those who have lost limbs and how they recover over the long term and when a service member had to lose, had to confront amputation. I think at the beginning of the war, there was one understanding, and as those wars progressed, there's been a more sophisticated understanding of when that process has to happen, what can be saved, what cannot. And so there's a long, long history of that interaction. This, relatively speaking, is the least invasive. We, we, yeah. We've also had a history of the military um, testing medicines and other things on service members unwittingly and they even seen lawsuits because of the consequences of those tests. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Finally for this week, music festivals and the live events industry are trying to create their own bubbles to get people out again. One strategy that is being explored is two-stage COVID testing. Get a test a few days before the event, and then another quick test before you can get in. While there are some limitations, this could be a model to get live events going again. And this was also tried out just recently over Labor Day weekend. For more on creating these event bubbles, we'll speak to Michelle Luke, independent counterculture journalist at Bloomberg News. So that festival was called Utopia. It took place in uh, the Poconos Mountains in Pennsylvania. It was an LGBT festival. And I think that the promoter told me that he was really looking for a way for his community to come back together. So he was actually replicating a model that another festival did a couple months ago where they also did two-stage testing. And basically how it works is that before attending the festival, about four days before, you have to go to a medical facility or order it at home COVID test. And those were sent to a lab. And then once you got the all clear from that, you were able to sort of carpool to the festival and you and your car be placed into a quarantine area six feet apart where everyone took a rapid test. And what was really interesting to me is that they actually managed to screen out some people who tested positive. I think in total around six attendees had to be turned away. And so a few of the attendees who managed to make it through the gates also told me that even though, you know, it was extra money and a lot more effort to attend the festival, the sense of freedom that they got on the other side made it worth it. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that are willing to go through those steps to get out there and enjoy themselves once again. But let's talk about some of those hurdles. Obviously, there's a cost associated with this for the attendees and for the event promoters. You know, the costs are going to, I'm sure, double in some parts of it. And then there's also kind of the logistics of all of that, too. I mean, it's, it's more time intensive, right? You're getting tested days before. The line to get inside is probably that much longer. So let's talk about some of those things. So one thing while writing this story that I wanted to figure out, you know, is could this method work for other festivals or is it only applicable to like a certain type? And I think in general, yeah, it doesn't really work for festivals where people aren't camping on site because of the nature of creating a bubble. You kind of have to stay within the grounds for the entire time. Even leaving to go to like, you know, a grocery store to pick up some supplies or something could compromise everybody. So that's one of the hurdles, I think, that it doesn't really work for larger festivals festivals like, let's say, Coachella. Also, the promoters told me that when it came down to the numbers, you know, he had to really beef up his staff in order to provide the kind of attention that you would need to do all of the testing and 
just give people sort of like reminders to wear masks and things like that. There's just more staffing needs. So his staffing costs went from 10% to 22%. So it pretty much doubled. And the testing altogether took up 30% of his budget. So this wasn't really a money-making operation for him. He said he saw it as more of an investment in his future because he's planning to keep doing this. Again, he already has another event scheduled for Halloween. In that specific example, I guess the profit margin was about 8% compared to an average of 30% before the pandemic. So definitely not a big moneymaker on that front, which, you know, would put a lot of promoters off. And, you know, we're talking about also huge festivals like Coachella, let's say, it'd be so hard to get some of this done. And as you mentioned, if you're not camping there, it breaks the bubble. There's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but they're really looking at this model as something that could at least hold them over for now because, you know, a vaccine's still going to take some time beyond that to get people actually vaccinated in large numbers is going to take time. And in the meantime, you know, these events, promoters want to get back to action. People want it too. They want that escape. They don't want to be closed down anymore. So they're still kind of looking at this two testing stage thing as a possibility. Exactly. And I think it's such an interesting time for nightlife and music events. You know, a lot of promoters have not been doing anything or they've, you know, indefinitely postponed or in some cases we've seen some festivals kind of schedule some things for 2021. So, you know, on one hand, I think a lot of events organizers just don't feel like it's safe to be doing anything right now. And they really push back on anyone throwing events. So that's another part of the conversation that I thought was very interesting. But then you have promoters like the one who was behind this festival, who really think that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that focusing on COVID testing is one way that they can do this now and create a community that, you know, is engaged with them during this strange pandemic time. And to me, I think another side of the story was to kind of try to figure out if COVID testing is accurate enough to make this a viable solution. To me, that's what the story really hinged on, right? Like, can we trust the COVID testing? That's a very important point because the classic tests, the nasal swabs, the ones that are sent to labs are a lot more reliable than these rapid response tests. So you might be getting something a few days ahead of time that says you're good. And then a rapid response test the day of could give you maybe a false positive or a false negative, things like that. So that's a definitely another thing to be wary of. So I actually took this question all the way up to the New York City Department of Health, as well as the Office of Nightlife, to try and figure out if we could get some guidelines from, you know, city officials. And unfortunately, you know, what was striking to me is that both of these departments kind of told me that they basically couldn't comment, that they couldn't really say. Without any clear guidance from city officials, this answer is a little bit difficult to answer. But the fact is that organizers of events are doing it anyway. And I guess, you know, the promoter of this festival recently told me that he had zero confirmed cases after the festival. So I guess, you know, there's that. Yeah, I mean, that's great. And that's what people look to. You know, you try this kind of experiment, did it work? And then you can build off of that. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing and and everybody's trying to get back to normal. So this is just one aspect of exploring that. Michelle Luke, independent counterculture journalist at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.